you know, this is only a half joking comment, but the album kind of plays out like a dinner party at Dracula's house. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends and lifelong musicians break down and analyze an album from Robert Dimery's seminal book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. This week we've been listening to David Bowie's Station to Station. So excited for a conversation about the record. We're going to dive into a few select tracks. We're going to take lots of tangents. We're going to give lots of opinions. We're going to complain about vibrato, I'm sure. (laughs) What? And culminating in David Bowie's, I'm sure, most weighted upon accolade of whether or not we believe this is worth listening to before you die at the end of this podcast we'll give our official vote so you can feel like you really got something concrete out of listening to us blather (laughs) before we jump right in and start listening to the most popular song from this record i'd love to go around the room by way of introductions and hear everyone's tweet length review of station to station by david bowie let's kick it over to tom All right. Hey, everybody. This is Tom. My tweet length review is if your familiarity with David Bowie is like, I know that Major Tom song. I saw that song Heroes in some YA movie at some point. And uh, (laughs) I'm not uh, too familiar. Let me dive into his catalog. This is not the album for you to start with. Most certainly. (laughs) However, if you are somebody who's listened to Hunky Dory you know a good amount of the David Bowie stuff and you want to get a little bit deeper, I think this is a fantastic album to jump in on. It's not as accessible as some of his other work, a little bit more challenging, but that does not mean it's not good. Awesome. Let's kick it over to Adam. Hey, this is Adam. This is actually not the album I would expect to emerge from an occult-inspired cocaine bender. (laughs) Although I do see the influence of the undead on his singing style. That's gone on the soundboard. (laughs) (laughs) Alan, what do you think? Hey, this is Alan. Um, I would say uh, all the kids out there, regardless of whether you like or dislike this album, for reasons that we'll discuss at length, I'm sure, don't try this at home. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. And I will say I've been a longtime fan of David Bowie, but I was only very, very, very glancingly familiar with this one before this week. So I say with some amount of confidence that this might be David Bowie's most indulgent record. And that's really saying something. So excited to excited to jump in here. Yeah, that average track length on this album is it's pretty damn long. Pretty damn long. Pretty Six tunes, right? Pretty damn long. So just so we get right into some music, let's go ahead and play the hit song from this record, the song I think we were all familiar with before we, we turned on the full album. Play a little snippet of that. It's called Golden Years. Golden Years. Golden Years. 
get into general impressions and I want to revisit golden years down the road when we talk about some more of the tracks and get into the specifics there let me give a little background on on what's going on here it was already sort of alluded to but this was a weird time for David Bowie even decades later he was pretty open about the fact that he did not want to remember this period in his life (laughs) and that it was it was really his his darkest his darkest time he was definitely a cocaine addict he was living in Los Angeles, and he was into a lot of weird stuff. This is kind of um, this is kind of conspiracy theory, Bowie. This is the Bowie that would get booked on Rogan, like right away. <laughs> <laughs> the DMT Bowie. <laughs> yeah, he's into he's into all kinds of weird stuff. He's he got down to uh, I think under a hundred pounds at a point. They're like holy tell- crap. Yeah, he he was he was in a bad place, and he has he has sort of alternated in in interviews later, saying either he doesn't remember anything about it, or that he does not want to remember anything about these sessions. I heard him say something to the effect of, "I know they were in Los Angeles because someone told me they were." <laughs> that that's about all he remembers wow. about yeah. what was going on here. So he he was deep in the throes of an addiction. He was coming off of at this point he was very well established in his music career. He had been making records for almost 10 years. This Station to Station was released in January of 1976. This is his 10th studio album. So he's he's pretty he's pretty established. He's been touring seasoned the world. Veteran. Yeah. He's a seasoned yeah. veteran. He would go on by the way, and we can just say right off the bat, the Bowie catalog is quite intimidating if you haven't you know, if you don't know where to approach it, he's made something on the order of 26 albums, studio albums and countless live releases and things like that. So this is number 10. And one of the things, of course, he was famous for and continues to be famous for is his ability to be this chameleon who would switch genres and take on different characters in each successive album and on each successive tour. And so what this this album brought a new character to the fore, which he references a few times on the record, called the Thin White Duke. <laughs> I, I finally like I, I know I think it was referenced at one point in a prior podcast, one of the prior thirty, and it finally clicked when he started singing Thin White Duke, and I just giggled. Yeah, you really got into character pick, for this. If you're, <laughs> and if you're going to pick an alter ego, I, uh, I don't know. Maybe there's a story behind it. I don't know, but. I, one thing I will say is that uh, he is letting that character do a lot of work in the excuses department because this is also a period of time where he got, you know, he was like praising fascism. At one point, he was like trying to go through customs and had a bunch of Nazi paraphernalia. And like in Jesus. retrospect, he was just like, oh, yeah, I was just really into the thin white Duke character. He was kind of a fascist. Wait, are we talking like, about Eric Clapton? Yeah, trying to pass Eric off Clapton. some of this like, uh, oh, no, it wasn't me. It was, it was the thin white Duke. You know, it I'm a cool guy. alter yeah. ego. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
on on the thin white duke character and, and you're totally right we should get into that so the concept is he's sort of a jaded cabaret singer european pale european royal from from days past but he's also kind of based on you know david bowie really likes aliens looking down upon human society so he previous incarnations he was ziggy stardust a kind of a rock star androgynous alien he went to los angeles to record this record right after he made what i think was his major movie debut he was he played an alien who fell to earth in a movie called the man who fell to earth which if you haven't seen it it's 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 a strange film worth watching it's like an art house film ah all right and if you want to see rip torn's Dick, this would be the place to go. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> Should I hit mute Sold. on the movie and put the Sparks, let's put a Sparks album on in the background to really? <laughs> but I think I think one of the things that Bowie, you know, you can decide to forgive him for this or not. It's it's up to you. But one of the things that he was known for, he's kind of a method actor type of person, and he really went deep on whatever was going on in these characters. And I think that is part of what brought him to a really dark place in his life. And that's in addition to him dealing with fame and you know, being followed around and obsession. He was already an icon, uh, you can say, at this point in his life. That's part of why he wanted to go to America, to be a a little bit, to blend in a little bit more, but he was also (laughs) seeking to be sort of a Hollywood star. I was going to say, everyone goes to L.A. to not be seen. That's that's (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to lay low, man. I'm going to go to L.A. That's why you dye your hair bright orange also. Yeah. So, so what he said though on the on the kind of Nazi stuff was he said, you know, the thin white duke, he was an ogre for me. I hadn't seen England for a few years, and when I visited, I saw the National Front. Same stuff we talked about on the Elvis Costello podcast, right? This rise in in fascism and right wing politics in the UK was going on. And so David Bowie goes on to say, you know, it was obvious to me there was a Nazi party in England. Whether or not it was a good thing that I did, meaning parody it or not. He's like, I don't know. This is ultimately the ramblings of an amphetamine addict. <laughs> he acknowledges that. But he said, I believe the best way to fight an evil force is to caricature it. So that was his sort of stated purpose, but I think it took him to a really dark place and we got some really weird stuff out of it. You know, on another front, there's that story about Stephen King being so high on cocaine he doesn't remember writing Cujo. And he always said it was like a very <laughs> oh interesting God. experience that he got to read a Stephen King novel for the first time in his life and if i was david bowie and this is the first david bowie album i got to listen to as an outsider i don't know if i would have been super pleased by that i don't know if i would have been like this is the one that i yeah as a fresh you know fresh outsider coming in i want to hear tom you alluded to it that that if you're coming into bowie pretty fresh this is this is pretty weird this is pretty out there it's pretty hard to take I'll just tell you, I, I like the record. It grew on me over the course of the week, but it's definitely not the most accessible point for David Bowie, and I still probably wouldn't list it among his top maybe even 10 studio albums. That said, it does, if you listen to the albums that are kind of right around it, he's coming off of Young Americans, which was a pretty big hit. He recorded a lot of that in Philadelphia. He was really trying to do this kind of plastic funk thing, is what he called the genre. More more Motown, doo-wop, soul Blue-eyed music soul, kind of right? thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and so you hear some of that on this record, too. It, it feels like a transitional record is the point. 
what after this to go dry out from this crazy addiction he left america he went to berlin to dry out and he created his famous berlin trilogy working with brian eno which was much more influenced by electronic music what was going on in germany at that time and like craft work and was that also yeah. around when he was hanging out with Iggy Pop over exactly. in Germany? As everybody exactly. who wants to stop doing drugs does, you start hanging <laughs> out with Iggy Pop all the time. Biggest <laughs> heroin addict you can find. I think the chronology... Is Lou Reed available? Let's <laughs> all three of us hang out. We'll get sober together. Really? I, I don't know the chronology of when he worked on Transformer, but it must have been around this time. I think he realized he got to rock bottom. He went to Berlin. He dried out and had a decent experience with it. And then he probably invited a couple of those other junkies over and was like, maybe I can help you guys and make some money in the process, right? Did anybody else take issue with some of the, I guess, style descriptions of the album? Because I listened to it a couple times, and then I went and read the Wikipedia article, and people are calling it art rock, funk rock, R&B, space rock, all this you know, transitional to synth. It's like I heard a couple open hi-hat things, and people called it like a disco transition album it didn't really there wasn't enough of one thing for me in my head to think like oh it deserves to be categorized it just felt like kind of a 70s rock album because a lot of that stuff had been done before this came out in 76 so it's not like it's super groundbreaking in terms of breaking again not not being super familiar with bowie's catalog but nothing in here stuck out to me as so monumental in music and rock that it deserved to be, I guess, have all these different influential categories thrown at it. Anybody else feel that? Or I think this is one of those albums that has a rich revisionist history around it where people look back on it and it, listen, I'm the type of person I never, uh, I was think the worst of people that's one of my best characteristics of course but i feel like there are a lot of and, and you like us somehow yes we, yeah. we right you know i also hell? like the worst people um <laughs> i i feel like there is a a phenomena that i, I maybe over ascribe but it is a real phenomena of going back and looking at something that is challenging and being like oh this is their best album because not everybody can like it i don't necessarily buy into that and then i feel like once you've gone down that road you tend to try to say well one of the reasons why it's fantastic is because it led to this it led to this it led to this it led to this and adam i agree with you i didn't find it to be as revolutionary as i think it has been lauded as retroactively yeah i, I would agree too even in the context of bowie's catalog you know it's outside of music i, I i'll i think one of the points of context here. First of all, anyone who's coming out and saying this is Bowie's best studio album, I think is, is cracked. They're, they're full just, of shit. Yeah. They're just totally <laughs> out of sorts on that one. That is a pretty undefendable position. However, and if anything, right, given the time that it came out, Bowie's not really exactly known for breaking new ground with his music. What he's known for is picking up on what else is going on in the culture and sort of twisting it or recycling it or repurposing it for him. So this is a time, January of 1976, when this came out. This was definitely deep disco era. Sure. I took a look at the charts. You got Love Roller Coaster by the Ohio Players. You got mm -hmm. the OJs. And then you also have people like Diana Ross and Barry Manilow up really high on those charts pretty consistently around this time. You know what the number one song was when this came out? The song Convoy. 
Which is one of those songs that I can only hear sung by Homer Simpsons. Simpsons. <laughs> We're gonna take this convoy across the USA. <laughs> convoy. I I had to go listen to that and I was like, well, if that's the context, this seems pretty revolutionary. But there was a bunch of other good shit going on during that time. No, well, what I drew from the sampling of the charts was more this. I think Convoy is a little more of a, what do you call it, a novelty song. But a lot of what was going on between disco and this kind of emotional song uh, craft, if you will, torch songs, I think that's what Bowie's picking up on. And so you get this mix of this very emotional musical theater kind of David Bowie, which he had definitely... You know, he was a big fan of him on previous records, and I like that aspect of him. Mixed with this weird disco thing, you know, super coked out filter on that. So, yeah, so I just think he's, I think he's someone who, he's been called a culture vulture, right? He's someone who picks up on what's going on in, in the clubs at that moment. He doesn't really break new ground himself. Yeah, I, I had a similar take in listening to it where it didn't strike me as, like, something new, but more a kind of riding with the times a little bit. I did like the, you know, so I'm somebody who considers myself, you know, a lot more into kind of funk and soul and things like that. But a lot of stuff from that era felt very like manufactured and, you know, you listen to it for 30 seconds and then you're kind of tired of it where I think he did a pretty good job in this album of incorporating those elements without sounding like way too cheesy or over the top, like still kind of keeping his essence. But yeah, I, I, I kind of took it that way. Cool. So let, let's let's put this in a little context. Uh, let's do Bowie by the numbers here, station to station by the numbers. This is not even amongst his top 10 highest selling albums of the, I think it was 28 of his career, or 26 total albums. So it's not even in the top 10. It was certified gold in the U.S., which means it sold half a million. So, I mean, good, but but not good for Bowie. A few right. years later, he went on to record Let's Dance, and that that is his top-selling album, and it's sold more than 12 million copies. Jesus. He, I always like to look at these guys' age when they're doing this. When he's recording this, he's 28 years old. Just To me, that's just mind-blowing. The older I get, the more yeah. weird that seems. Well, it's like that Beatles thing, too, where... You, you realize, were any of them even 30 at the point where they, well, certainly when they recorded, you know, the, the um, Let It Be sessions. See, we got to get back to uh, Spirit with uh, the 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus, oh where they had, 17 you know, year old or Well, whatever, no, I'm uh, talking about they had, like, the 48-year-old drummer. Oh. <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's more <laughs> making me feel good and not like I've wasted my entire life and will continue to. <laughs> right. There's still time. Still time to waste your life. My so, track. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> So basically, so, so Bowie had sort of loudly proclaimed that he was done with rock music around this time. He called it a boring dead end, and he, he moved to L.A. in part to try to become a movie star, you know, with, with mixed success. Sorry. Barbershop has grown stale. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I know our listeners love our Constant Simpsons referencing, but I, I cannot help but chuckle at that. Bring it on, man. <laughs> yeah. And huge surprise during this tumultuous time, his his first marriage was also on the rocks to uh, to Angela. Uh, this is pre Iman, obviously, right? I, and I think a lot of that is is good context for what's going on in this record. He, he also, I just want to point out that this idea of alienness is pretty central to Bowie's identity. He sounds feels like an alien. He takes that perspective a lot in the characters that he creates, 
like Ziggy Stardust, his most famous onstage persona. He just, when he went into the studio to record this, he had just finished playing an alien in this movie I mentioned, and he's also feeling very much out of sorts in America as a European, as a British person. So he's just like, there's a lot of fragility and emotion on this record and I think loneliness like it's kind of it's kind of a sad personal document in a sense and what I one of the feelings I had this is a you know this is only a half joking comment but the album kind of plays out like a dinner party at Dracula's house (laughs) 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 which is to say which is to say that it gets more crazed and he gets more fragile and emotional as the night goes on and the bravado kind of slinks away. He sounds the most confident on the early tracks. And then he's like begging you to stay over. And then that last song, Wild is the Wind, you know, that's like a pretty emotional, that's like a torch song, right? Where he's uh, lamenting his life. Okay, so let, just a little deeper on the mental state, as has been widely reported, his, apparently his diet at this time consisted of cocaine. <laughs> Milk and peppers. Oh At least he was getting the vegetables in, though. I'll, I'll give him that. <laughs> I, I did. The peppers see... were so. Is that were they hot peppers? And no. He was just looking to like, or they were they were just like some some Carolina Reapers in there. I, <laughs> I got clarification on that point because I was curious as well. Right. No, red and green bell peppers. Oh God. Okay. It had to have a variety. Wow. To be fair, they taste pretty good raw. They got a good texture and. Oh yeah. It's just such an odd. I I defy you to eat a red pebble, red bell pepper, and a green bell pepper blindfold, and tell me which one is which. They taste the fucking same. Oh, well, give me some cocaine and milk, and I'm sure I can figure it out. <laughs> Heightened sensory perception there. So he was he was he was deep into living this character of whatever it was. He was studying Kabbalah. He was studying other esoteric stuff, Aleister Crowley, things like that. He got very paranoid. I think that was largely an effect of the cocaine. And he rattled off fascist statements like how he would have made a great Hitler. He, At some point, he thought witches were stealing his semen. And he also <laughs> thought he was in some kind of grand duel with our friend Jimmy Page to be head yes. warlock of black magic rock and roll. <laughs> like, he was cracked, man. If I was going for black magic rock and roll, this would not be the sound I was trying to get out there. You know, Paige was definitely much more on the, you know, they said the Aleister Crowley mysticism rock front. This is this doesn't seem like it is imbued much with that. Or it might be so subtle, like lyrically. Again, I tried to look at some of the lyrics on this on I think it's genius.com where they have people write in what they think the, the analysis of the lyrics and and where some of the occult and warlocks and wiccans come in and it's it doesn't appear to be too in your face versus you know again led zeppelin lyrics that are explicitly calling out some something no i I agree i agree it's (laughs) he should have used the devil's interval more (laughs) that would have the that's the tritone right there's the devil's interval they used to call that the blue note baby (laughs) as opposed to the brown note (laughs) <laughs> Which is that? Is that like the flatted fifth or something like that? Yeah, that's the that's the 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 tritone, the flatted fifth, the flat fifth, called yeah. the, the devil's interval, as opposed to the brown note, which is apparently a real note that can be hit, which makes you shit your pants. It has to be loud. <laughs> if, but if you have the right lose speakers. control of your mouth. For our non-musical listeners who are wondering about that tritone, we will <laughs> now reference. 
we will now reference a place you definitely know it from, which is the Simpsons theme. The first three notes of the Simpsons theme represent that interval. And the idea is that it forces you, it puts you in an uncomfortable position, it forces it to resolve up to the fifth. So just like as in the Simpsons. You desperately wanted to to land on that last note, yep. Exactly. Okay, I say we move right along to talking about the actual tracks. The first track is, you know what, I don't have the time on me right now, but it's quite long. Yeah, 10 oh, minutes yeah, over plus. Over 10 minutes, Ooh. yeah. <laughs> and it's the title track. Let's play just a little, as you can imagine, there are many parts to it, but let's just play a little representative snippet here and, and talk about it. This song's called Station to Station. like oh is this his like response to band on the run three songs in one you know three for the price of one song here very much like well not not necessarily like band on the run but someone in that vein that only the third part really holds together on its own as a sort of cohesive song i i read a review the guy barney hoskins is one of those retroactive review, retroactive reviews where he referred to Station to Station, the album, as one of the most impressive of his musical junctions. Intense, passionate, focused, surging, and urgently funky. And I take particular issue with the term focused because this does not feel like a focused song. It doesn't really feel like a focused album, if I'm being honest. This song is it's not bad, but it, it takes so long to get to the part that hangs together that it just still kind of feels like a mess it doesn't feel weighted appropriately i'll jump in here i i disagree a little bit i do feel it's a slightly disjointed but i i feel like the song immediately went to like one of my like it's like an instant classic for me i i do love these sort of like hypnotic you know songs that start with that really slow you know hypnotic sort of thing it almost reminded me of something that could be on like metal you know the, the floyd album um yeah, I, I, I kind of want to cover the song with Mega, to be honest, because I just think it I think it rocks. I fucking love the song. You need it to is... fill a, like a quarter of your total set time with one song. <laughs> <laughs> what one other song are we doing for this set, guys? 
we actually are playing a 25 minute set on Friday, and so this could definitely eat up a good chunk of there that. There you go. I don't. I mean, I'm not that intimidated by the length of the song. Let's just throw that out there. We all well, you know, gushed over Pink Floyd's Echoes on the aforementioned metal, which is over 22 minutes long, I believe. Sure. And but there's there's also eleven minutes of that middle that could be cut out and you know, be a little bit of a tighter song, but you take the they go with the bad. I think it's Pink Floyd's masterpiece, and I'll leave it alone personally. <laughs> I'm not saying this is as good as that, but I like it. I like the groove of it. It's interesting, and it's definitely indulgent, right? Like with the song smash, but it it kind of is a nice. So Golden Years is not really a great primer for what you're going to hear on this record, I don't think. Oh, definitely not. But this one gives you a better indication of what's to come. The different modes. It took me 12 times through this album to start digging this tune. And I, I kind of am landing where Alan is right now in that I actually dig it. There are issues. Believe me, I have issues with this. But there are some cool parts. I dig where it picks up. Again, indulgent. I, I think it takes a while to get there. That was deliberate, but I like it when it does. Uh, the guitar work is super tasty in there. Uh, mad props to the guitar player on this album. That was the one thing that I focused on throughout the entire album that was kind of a, a through line that kind of kept it coherent for me was waiting and listening to the the masterful guitar work throughout, even when the songs were kind of flopping around and I, I didn't really care. There's always, always some guitar work in there that I, I liked. So let's let's talk about that personnel for a second. And I, I agree. One of the things that connects this record to David Bowie's future, especially his near future, a.k.a. Heroes and Low, the so-called Berlin trilogy, is that a lot of the parts from guitar, from the piano, are very textural in their approach, as opposed to melodic, right? And so I think you have this really interesting like layering of textures. There's two guitar players on the record. What Bowie was working with, a trio called the Dam, D-A-M trio, which was these guys, uh, Carlos Alomar is the guitar player in that trio. There's a bass player called George Murray and a drummer called Dennis Davis. And I guess they had been already been touring with, with Bowie a bit. He'd been working with them for a while. Carlos Alomar ended up being on that Lust for Life record as well. And these guys continued to work with Bowie for a long time after that. So they're kind of the core but then they brought in another guitar player. This dude's name is Earl Slick. And I think he also went and worked with Bowie like for another 20 years after this. And then lastly, they brought in, and this is going to sound like a weird one, the pianist from the E Street Band, who they just happened to run into in L.A. And they were like, yo, we were just talking about you. Come over to Bowie's. <laughs> That's crazy. I huh. He's like, the you got cocaine? Just... We have a yeah. lot of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> it's the great unifier. <laughs> Holds up the duffel bag. Yeah, they had just finished Born to Run, and when you hear this guy Roy Bitten talk about the difference in the recording process, like Bruce was this taskmaster of perfection at every turn, and Bowie was like a kind of throw it at the wall, improv, recorded all hours of the night kind of person. So it was very, very different, right? So who's the guy who wore in peace? I kept seeing references to. Is he somebody that we should know? I never heard of him. Did I say his name? No, before? he is the guy. He plays a small role. He is on the record. He actually sings the low background harmony on Golden Years, which I think is pretty dope. Oh, that's like, that's like my favorite Bowie harmony. Yeah, but uh, he's he's a he's like a grade school friend of David Bowie's. So that's to my mind, that's his only credit. When I looked him up, I couldn't find that. He so was his like legit many other name is Warren Peace. <laughs> I doubt it. No, I think it's one of those like 
yeah you know world be free or like sure sure dude but of so life. but you know just to like when the when the cocaine has a hold of you the way that they would work apparently is this guy earl slick said that there were nights when they were they supposedly had off when the studio wasn't even booked and he would go out drinking and then they'd send some roadie find him in a bar at 1 a.m and he'd be drunk and he'd be like yo david's in the studio right now you gotta go there's a car outside Jesus. and then he was just like all right fine and they go record all night as an aside to this like every time we do these and we talk about these artists who are like beyond fucked up in some capacity when we did maggot brain you know george clinton that whole crew were tripping balls i even if i'm a little drunk i can't play shit i get really sloppy like i honestly don't i mean and clearly these are like the cream of the crop talent wise but i'm just impressed you can even like perform you know functionally on when you've been shit. drinking hard for 20 hours straight oh, staying up four days in a row. Like, right right i was i was more thrown off by the the fact that the drug of choice was coke for this album it didn't read like a coke album for most of the songs mm. i was maybe that's where the disjointedness comes from i get the disjointedness i get the scattered the unfocused but like i maybe as somebody who's never done coke i just maybe assume that it's going to be like super frenetic and fast paced and i didn't quite get that like you know like you're playing maybe 10 beats per minute faster than you normally would vibe out of these songs to my mind, at least three of the songs we're going to talk about sound very coked up, but Station to Station is not necessarily one of them. So let's go back to the song for a second. It starts with, what, 90 seconds of a train sound effect? Pretty spot on, on the nose representation of what this title is supposed to mean. But I think, and you guys tell me your thoughts, I think Station to Station is also intended to represent like life and death as two stations in on a train and i think he's also trying to reference the stations of the cross from our lovely catholic upbringing i didn't get I, the stations of the cross one <laughs> yeah also apparently the train the long standing train sound at the beginning of the track was a hat tip to craftworks autobahn which i feel the need for everyone I'm, let's drop it in right here and i think we should all listen to just a little tiny bit of the chorus of this craftwork song because it's fucking great this okay i just wanted you guys to know what the heck i was talking about because that is not what i was expecting when i turned on craft work so like it's a shame on me rock is <laughs> that's what they it's, call it by the way i didn't make that up no it's no You're it's not true don't cancel mean. me right right and this is on the nose too but it sounds like a modern volkswagen commercial <laughs> <laughs> so i do have to um Pick, pick on his vocal stylings in this song a little bit. I know you're all very surprised. I think it's right around the four minute and 40 mark. He makes four what I consider mistakes that all kind of congeal together into just muddiness. So...
any one of them is a problem, but when you combine all four, it just turns into garbage in my mind. So first off, the melody is super low. The melody is kind of nebulous. It's not really well-defined, very low register. He adds on a ton of vibrato, and then he adds like a weird harmony, like a fourth above or something. Or a, it, and so what happens is you just get this, and it just doesn't sound, there's just no melody there. And when those two things combine, it's just, I, I, it, I, it loses me a bit. Adam, if you had to apply an animal to his vibrato styling there. What animal would you pick? It would not be goat vibrato. Goat vibrato is much Llama vibrato? Yes, I'll, I'll come Alpaca. back to that one. So. Alpaca. I, I hear you. He's definitely flexing that low vocal range. And I do think Bowie, Bowie is one of the great vocal ranges of all time, but I don't feel like he gets enough credit for it because he is so in the low range. This is an area where he's, he's really... You know, he's, he's overconfident, a little unearned confidence, perhaps, in that low range because he's so drugged out, maybe. But, yeah, I mean, the range within these songs is pretty crazy, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give him that. Absolutely. Okay, also, if you're going to, you know, just the fact that he calls out, it's not a side effect of the cocaine. It's like, Dave, I wasn't thinking that, but now that you brought it up. <laughs> now I can't stop thinking about it. Checks out. <laughs> yeah, it's like they didn't have Wikipedia back in the day where people could be like, oh, he was on a bunch of cocaine when he made this. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. How do they know I only subsisted on peppers, milk, and cocaine? Right. <laughs> They're in the God. studio like, if we don't mention it, everyone's going to know. Just what, what do you think his shits were like, by the way, on the pepper, milk, and cocaine diet? Oh, my God. It's got to be horrendous. I'm picturing the pre-workout thing where he's just shaking up like a shaker of milk and coke. <laughs> Okay, it's so it's it's a long song. Uh, I I think we've I think we've hit on it. Oh, you know, sorry, Adam. I meant to add. You you mentioned some tasty guitar. The thing that really jumped out to me in terms of a guitar part was the little arpeggio dead string thing over the thin yes. white dun, duke line. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. There's also a sweet pinch harmonic at eight fourteen. That's just fantastic. Very tasty. All well right. done, sir. All right, let's let's listen to it then. Jeez. <laughs> Okay, we're going to move on now to Golden Years, which was the first single released here. So I think, you know, we, we've, we've talked about other records where people don't seem to have a good sense of what the single should be, but I think they got <laughs> this one right on. Let's play another snippet of the hit, Golden Years. Some of these days and it won't be long Gonna drive back down where you once belonged In the back of a dream car, 20 foot long Don't cry, my sweet, don't break my heart it's not like they had a lot of choices for what the single was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go with the shortest song on the album. Yeah. <laughs> This, you know, I, when I first heard the song, I was like, this sounds like he wrote this for the Young American session and it didn't mm -hmm. make the album or whatever. And they put it uh, on this one. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I was like, oh, this feels, 
and not to I'm not knocking it I think that this is an extraordinarily well crafted and catchy song but it felt a little more backwards looking versus you know forward pointing for the the sort of Berlin trilogy after this agreed he did apparently write it after the young americans session you know so he wrote, he wrote it for this but i i totally agree it it fits very well with like the song young americans and yeah it's one of the reasons that this feels like it's this album is in two worlds but this is a tight ass groove man this song's great i love how they layer the textures on this song it's such a simple it's really just two chords on the guitar but they get so much out of that and you got that Bowie's rangy voice just all over the map. The the aforementioned low vocal harmony that Tom Marty yeah, serenaded yeah, us cool. with is really dope. So I, there's a whist, he whistles at one point, like that's a nice little you know addition in there. I also Pretty feel cool. like that. It's so vintage Bowie. He's just like, let yeah. me show you the highest note I can hit and go down to one of the lowest notes I can hit. It's showing off, but it works well. Like showing off is not really showing off if you fucking nail it. Yeah, and I thought this was one of the songs where like he really captured that disco funk ish sort of thing yeah. like really well. It almost yeah. reminded me, and I'm sure this comment will go uh, a certain way, but it almost reminded me of like this song "Shakedown Street," like the Dead song, where you're you're sort of like an Americana slash older school rock band that's bringing in some funk elements but i think it's like tastefully done and it's not even though it is a transition type of album doesn't feel like forced or you know like like he's trying too hard with it yeah i i see what you mean yeah i think it really lives and dies on bowie's vocal performance like a lot of his songs and whereas shakedown street feels pretty monotonous in its vocal delivery to me but oh, I, for I, sure. I, I, I was I speaking more premise. musically but yeah yeah I wish he had done more stuff in this vein, to be honest. I like this version of Bowie. There's a lot of different versions of him throughout the years, but I I dig this. Supposedly, when he wrote it, the first thing he did was he called up Colonel Parker. He tried to offer it to Elvis, who who turned it down, sadly. But that was was his initial thought. He's like, I'll give this to Elvis. I would say not sadly. I think this is the best version of the song. This is a great version. Although I I could envision Elvis doing this. Yeah, it doing could, that, could kind that of work. disco Elvis era, right? Yeah, but you know he wouldn't have been on coke; he'd have been on like downers, and that's just right. Might have been it wouldn't have come off the song. same way. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. This is Stone Cold Jam. Any complaints? Mm. No, I really don't have any complaints on the song. I love the claps. Like, I think the claps actually really killed this song. It kind of like, da da da. I kind of like throw in these little double claps a lot. It's great. Oh, it really yeah. It works out nicely. When you only have two chords, you have to mix up what's going on melodically. You have to mix up what's going on rhythmically. And I feel like they did a really good job of that. I will say, I don't have a complaints necessarily. The only thing that kind of stuck out to me with this song, which I think was like a microcosm of the rest of the album, was that I often see this song grouped in with among his best songs. Like, you know, if you if you read one of these like top five or top ten Bowie songs, I see see it in there. And same thing with the album. And I just I I don't know if I'm missing something. I think it's I think it's a good little groovy song, but I don't know that it like stands up to his best shit. The rest of the cattle. Right. The rest of the highlights in the catalog. I would put it up there as top five most accessible Bowie songs. That's certainly I think. I can see that. You know, yeah. hard to. It's. I think it's pretty hard to dispute that. 
if you're somebody who doesn't even like most of what David Bowie's sound is, but you hear this song, it's pretty. It's a pretty universal groove. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Very inoffensive. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah, it's a good point. It's interesting that it took him till about this point in his career to get to some of those more accessible songs. Because those other songs I'm thinking of that would be better, like stuff like Space Oddity, but that's probably a little less accessible. But by by this point, he's about to go into he's going to make Heroes, he's going to make Modern Love. You know, these are the ones. These are the hits. Sure, these are the danceable tunes. Cool. Let's roll it right along to TBC One Five. Let's play a snippet of that. the song called again <laughs> 42 times he says it 42 times in this song <laughs> well done sir might buy the numbers it's it's i feel like there's we've done it before with uh, you know too many nature's ways which i maybe have come around on the appropriate amount of nature's ways in there but like it, it's about like 7.5 to 8 sec- at once every 7.5 to 8 seconds or the green too many day times in the um, song because I walk alone and I walk alone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, well, mean, I like that. I like that Bowie thinks that he can hide it by just singing it with different cadences, which is TBC one five. <laughs> yeah, which is the same thing Hall and Oates do with yeah. the uh, I can't go for that. No can do. No I was can do. I was no put in the mindset do. of that movie Mean Girls. I was like, stop trying to make TVC one five a thing. It's not gonna <laughs> happen. <laughs> right. Right. That's awesome. This, you know, to me, the, the thing that saves this song for me is the kind of the rock and roll section that happens at around two minutes. That's by far my favorite section of the song because it dabbles in that kind of crocodile rock area yeah, for a little while. Right. But then when it actually locks in, I'm, I'm willing to listen to the song to get to the rock and roll section at, at two minutes. Is that the part where it's a transition and he just goes transition? Yes. No. Listen, it's a super coked out song. I, there's no denying it. No, I, I mean well, he the, says transition, then transmission, so, and then they break in. I think so. Exactly. Am I was I am I remember, remembering this right? That this song was born out of like some dream that Iggy Pop had, and which I mean makes total sense because I don't really know what the hell the song is about, but it. Did anyone else pick up on that, or am I? No, I didn't off? hear that. Yeah, I know. I I saw an article or something. Yes, same thing. It was some kind of fever dream that yeah, his girlfriend either fell into or was eaten by the television. And when you listen to some of the words, it kinda makes sense, I guess. I I forget some of the the lines in there, but so the other thing I like about this is the piano playing right at the beginning. It's not really my style, but apparently what he told this is the Bruce Springsteen E Street Band piano player Roy Bitten 
he told him to do have you guys listened to this guy professor longhair no, no it doesn't sound familiar well he's he's been around he's dead but he's a new orleans pianist who was around like in the very early days of new orleans jazz and kind of is a progenitor of that whole style um, and so this piano playing is very much aping sort of that style. And I guess that style was born of a time of piano playing where there was no drummer or band. So you wanted to get people to dance with the piano. So like the left hand really had to be extremely percussive and stuff. Anyway, yeah. uh, Professor Longhair, he's an interesting guy to look into. He wrote, there's that famous New Orleans song, Tipitina. He wrote that song. Anyway, you you, you would know him. He's done a, a ton of jazz standards. He's been around forever. But I think that's actually kind of cool. And uh, the, you know the other thing I want to say about this, and this this kind of pervades through the through the record, is this is a very Rocky Horror Picture Show to me. This song in particular, it's a little let's do the time warp, right? A little campy, yeah. Which I, I dig that is kind of Bowie's wheelhouse. So let's talk about the connection between those two phenomena, because I'm not a Rocky Horror expert by any means, but I was looking into this connection. The Rocky Horror Picture Show first came out in, 19, in late 1975, which is right around the time they went into the studio to record this. Now, I feel like already it's worth saying that the Rocky Horror Picture Show is playing off of something that David Bowie laid some foundations for in the first place with Ziggy Stardust and similar. You know, Bowie's been campy and androgynous for a long time, right? So, right. But then I kind of feel like maybe Bowie caught the ball back and is... <laughs> Is going back on it a little. Do you get what I'm saying at all? I think I can dig that. Yeah. So some interesting kind of musical theater, you know, Tim Curry in tights. Right. <laughs> I think they could have they could have shaved a minute and a half off of this, and it would have had the same impact. You could say that about did. every song in this album, right? <laughs> at least, I mean, what is the shortest song on this album? Is somewhere in the neighborhood of six minutes long, like five minutes and fifty seconds long. Outside of like Golden yeah. Years, well, that, Golden mean, Years, yeah. yeah, Golden Years, four minutes, right? Like three fifty something. Mm-hmm. The, to me, like the length of the songs is never like I'm never one to look at unless it's you know Femi Kuti or something. I'm never sure, one to look sure. at the song durations and feel a certain way about it because I think it's so case by case. I mean, shit, we grew up listening to like live tracks of a thirty minute. Reba oh sure yeah from fish or some shit I was just gonna say I do think in this particular song it's just way repetitive you know in that last like minute or two but I don't know that I would say the exact same for the rest of the album even though they are sure alongside yeah there's another song on here that I think we might talk about where the last I don't know two minutes is just like guitar solo and I'm cool with it because the guitar solo is ripping and it's interesting and I didn't get tired but this song I got a little tired and I I don't know, just, yeah, the repetitiveness, little little bored. There's an indulgence throughout the record, but I do like the song, and ultimately I like the record. So let's let's move right along to, I think, the song you're referring to, Adam, which is called Stay. Let's play a little snippet of that.
this to me is the most coked out song they did by far. Yes, and it is awesome. I fucking love this tune. <laughs> yeah, my I'm my totally... note on this is now this is coke rock. Seventies, okay. seventies <laughs> Miami cop coke show. <laughs> that like there's that like um, synth strings that kind of hang over the beginning gives you like a superfly feel almost. Like yeah, yeah I totally yep. dig it. The the riff at the beginning and I I guess it carries through some duration of the song rocks killer killer guitar riff i i got the sense that this was like born out of a jam i don't know if that's actually the case but this sounds like they're just recording everything and they sort of like pulled out part of a jam and maybe worked on it a little bit because it just had that very loose organic sort of feel i thought you know let me let me ask you this alan i want want to ask you specifically this what were your thoughts on the bass tone on this album I, I made a note that I, I really like the bass tone. I thought, um, but I think a lot of these like 70s rock tones are just straight like P bass, high mids, you know, coming through in the frequencies, um, possibly some pick playing in there. But like, I will say as far as the bass tone, there were areas where I felt like it was mixed really high in certain instances, like a lick would really cut through hard and, and maybe uneven. I, I I thought the bass tone was was pretty good on this act. You know, I I feel like there was a sound that we talked about this on the Spirit podcast, where it's that sort of like kind of digging almost a little dirt on the top bass tone that was like I really dug that. And I feel like, like that was a little bit that was a little bit more present on some of the earlier Bowie stuff, and I was missing that a little bit. I can feel like in terms of the mixing and you know just overall recording of the low end the transition into that sort of again the the berlin trilogy of you know you got heroes and that kind of stuff it it, it lacks a little bit of that aggressive bottom end i felt like it was good but i would have liked especially on a song like this for it to be a little bit more aggressive on the bottom end yeah i could use a little bit more a little bit more forward but i think you know to me the times when it did come forward it felt a little bit out of out of place or like a little bit mixed unevenly but yeah yeah I and that. i think that that's part of it is that like you're kind of jumping from too low to too high and i like i would have liked it to be a little bit more kind of riding in the middle that entire time that's just my, was just my take on it the segment called the bass corner yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's listen it's a cool song but i think it definitely sounds like it was born out of a jam. I agree. It's super angular. I called it futuristic disco with drum breaks, which I thought was kind of interesting. And Yeah, I can see that. But there's some clunky transitions in there, too, which made me almost think it was a jam that they just tried to shoehorn in together. Like, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but there might have been a mistake or two in there that maybe they just kept in terms of, like, when to transition and people being a little late for it or whatever. So I thought it was worth mentioning. We're basically covering all but one song on this record because there are so few tracks. But yeah, this sounds like cocaine. <laughs> if cocaine is uh, is what it sounds like at the two minute and twenty mark with that guitar solo that comes in, oh, give me more. Adam, 
time. So all of a sudden, fucking main yeah, it's pretty ripping, right? <laughs> yeah. Next week, it'd be like, oh, scratchy right. on the. Uh... <laughs> yeah, cool. And then yeah, this is the part in the dinner party where he's like begging you not to leave, not to go home. <laughs> please, he's like, no, look, no. we got the kids. We got the, we got to relieve the babysitter. Counts, please. No, listen to my guitar solo. <laughs> two more minutes. Two more minutes. This is great. Keep dancing. <laughs> but I want to go home, Dad. All right. Let's move on to the last song on the record. Wild is the Wind. A cover song. Let's play a snippet. Just some background, and I'll let you guys comment on it. So this was originally recorded by Johnny Mathis, but it's best known as the Nina Simone recording. And to even tackle a song that Nina... Like, every song Nina Simone touches, she owns, basically, instantly. The Nina Simone version is stunning, as you would expect. So I, I got to give some confidence props to Bowie for even going, like, yeah, this is worth a shot. Thoughts? Where does this appear on the album? Is this one of the last tracks? It is the last track. It is the last track. All right, yeah, swing for the fences, man. As you're going, <laughs> you're going out. I think with this song, Rob, I'm I'm more and more liking your analogy of the, you know, dinner party. You know, don't don't leave yet. It's becoming a little bit more unhinged. <laughs> but I do think I when I listen to this song, <laughs> the song itself didn't do a ton for me. Uh, you know, for for whatever reason. But I thought is I thought the vocal performance on it was really good. Like and it was probably the the showcase vocally on the album for me. Like all the things we're talking about his his mental state, his drug use, all that stuff seems to really like crescendo in this song and so i in that way i felt like it did have that like trajectory um yeah i thought the vocal performance on this was was awesome i i agree it's super emotional it's super vulnerable it's it's definitely a mode of david bowie that's not necessarily on display in all the other tracks or or all the other records and i don't i still don't think it really rivals the nina simone version exactly but he makes it his own, which I which is significant, I think. And I felt emotions listening to it. I felt I felt sad for him, especially knowing 
some of the other backstory here where he's lonely and isolated and effed up and just in a really dark place. You know, one thing I will say, maybe this is on me, foolish me, getting this far into the album and still expecting there to be some kind of hook to to tie the song together. Um, (laughs) That style of song works particularly well for like a jazz vocalist like Nina Simone. And it's more than just a vocal delivery. It is an overall treatment of the instrumentation on the song, the pacing, the space that is left in there. And it didn't work as well, kind of shoehorned a little bit more into it. Like, I hate to even call it a rock format, but you know what I mean. Like, um, it's it's not given that sort of, like, jazz treatment that makes a Nina Simone version of this sing in a way that the David Bowie version doesn't sing to me. I would agree that his vocal... His vocals are great, and he probably thought, this can stand just on the strength of my vocals. I don't think it stands on the strength of his vocals, personally. Yeah, I, I, I think he goes for it. This is one of the times in the album where you can feel that emotion, Rob. So I, I, I dig that. My only other note is I thought the guitar was nice. <laughs> did you just okay. copy and paste that for every single song? I album? did. The guitar was really nice. The bit wasn't overly affected in this, you know, this entire they album. They really like, were. Yeah, they, they, they showed up. Even E Street Band guy. I mean, if you, right. listen, if you're David Bowie on album number 10 and you cannot just get the best goddamn musicians right. to play with you, like, I don't even know what you're well, doing. Well, of course you can get the best, but I mean, I think it all has to line up right. And when you can have the same guys, I think, isn't this like the crew he used, you know, for the next four or five years, maybe, or even beyond that? So I, I think, like, even though you can get the best of the best, you know, getting them all working together, I think. There's something to be said for that. Yeah, I, I think in terms of his band chronology, it's not it's not super linear, but he had his Spiders from Mars group a couple years before with his guitar player Mick Ronson, for instance, and you know there was that band that he toured with extensively. That band kind of broke up, and then he put something like this band together, and they continued to tour with him at least and be on a lot of the records for another at least another decade. Well. I think that's the end of the record. So all that's remaining is to send it around the horn and ask everyone on this call, is David Bowie station to station a must listen before you die? I will kick that question first to Tom. Uh, this was a, this was a tough one for me. I feel like oftentimes I have a very clear answer off the first run through of the album. Yes or no. I didn't have a clear answer on the first run through, the second run through, the third run through, the fourth run through, et cetera, of this album. I think inevitably I'm going to come down as no. I think this is an important album in the David Bowie catalog and the David Bowie growth and the David Bowie chronology. Do I think this is an important album in the rock and roll music chronology or the soul music chronology? I don't think that this is a groundbreaking album in terms of changing the overall style of general popular music. I know it gets a lot of, you know, post hoc cred of it's just, you know, people look at it as pointing in directions that I just personally don't see. And so I'm going to say no. For a huge David Bowie fan, you probably already listened to it, so I don't need to tell you to listen to it. If you're not a huge David Bowie fan, there's many other David Bowie albums that are going to be more worth your time. Well said, Adam. Yeah, so it, I'm going to echo kind of what Tom said. It took me between 12 to 15 listens to kind of get wrapped around this album. 
which felt like a bit much. It, it seemed like a bit of a struggle this week for me. I also think that, again, reading some of the Wikipedia stuff, I don't think this was genre-defining or genre-defying. So I'm going to go ahead with a no on this one. Alan, what do you think, buddy? Yeah, I, I think um, I'm often conflicted when I hear albums like this because when if I hear an album and my instant read on it is very misaligned with what the public consensus is, and we sort of alluded to this earlier where I see this held up as one of his best albums. And it sometimes makes me question my own judgment of like, am I, do I just not, do I know what the fuck I'm talking about? Like, why am I here telling you whether you should listen to this or not? <laughs> because I oftentimes don't, you know, I'm, I'm not catching that like secret sauce or whatever it is. So I do like the album though. It's, I do feel like it's an enjoyable listen I found a, a few really good tunes on it. I was not that familiar with it before we we dove in, so I just don't think it rises enough to essential. He has he's got seven albums on this list. I think he's probably aside from the Beatles, you know, and maybe some others probably has the most albums on here. So I think if you're really trying to like round out your you know rock and roll education, I think there's a lot of other places of his that you can kind of start with until you get here. So. I did like the album. I, I think it was fine, but is not essential in my opinion. Ouch. Take that, Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? How dare all of you? Your Lifetime Achievement <laughs> Award has been stripped. <laughs> so I'll just say to start that I have, I feel a, a lot of personal connection to David Bowie, partly because he came to me originally in a part of my life where he really helped cement this like weird equals cool philosophy that my parents were trying to get across to me to make me feel better for being uncool. <laughs> and at the time, I remember I liked a lot of other weird music. They might be giants, crash test dummies, but they were definitely not cool. David Bowie was the first thing that kind of rode that line effectively, you know, perhaps through the, the, the fog of time or whatever, that he was both very strange and very cool. And it, it, it sort of showed me a path. That said, and so I've, I've long been a huge proponent of him and a huge fan of him, and the world should listen to more David Bowie, for sure. You know, that said, he has so much material. Like anyone who's made records for almost 50 years, he released his first record in the late 60s, and he released a record in 2016, a couple days before he died, an untimely death. And he was releasing records consistently. So... One of the things I love about him is that I still haven't listened to all the material. And he is one of the only people that I admired that early in my life that continues to surprise and astonish me, both because he has a wealth of material and because when I dig into material like this, I actually am really excited about it. So I really like the record. I hadn't heard it with any depth before this week, and I'm super glad I listened to it. All that said, I'm with the consensus of the group. It's a no. Whew, roller coaster, Rob. <laughs> Ooh, left yeah. us hanging. And I, I would echo everything you guys said. It's not, it's not key to the rock and roll canon. It's an important part of Bowie's story, and I'm glad I've added that to my list. And by all means, go out and listen to more David Bowie. And if you're that person who was maybe like me, who knows, I was super familiar already with that strip of records, Man Who Sold the World, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, kind of that era. I was pretty darn familiar with the Berlin Trilogy and then kind of a smattering of different things throughout the years as well. 
I say absolutely go in and listen to this record if you're that person. But yeah, if you're just someone trying to get acquainted with the rock and roll canon, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's indulgent. And it's an artifact of what's going on in this guy's life, of course. So it's interesting on that level. But you can safely skip it. So take that icon of all icons, David Bowie. Thin White Duke. It pains me to By say By the way, it. if you're going to pick your, your own alter ego, go with something a little better. Know, like King Long Dong Rock Hard or something. I don't know. Listen, I know this whole podcast and our lives are built on dick jokes, but I'm pretty sure Thin White Duke is a reference to a line of cocaine. It can. There's layers to it, Rob. It can be right. many things. It's open to interpretation. Yeah. Right. This movie is a line of cocaine on a dick. <laughs> Maybe it's what your poop looks like after you only ate cocaine, milk, and peppers. <laughs> For three weeks straight. Oh, milk. What the fuck? Okay. All that remains now is for us to talk about uh, Tom to spin that wheel and decide what we're going to be listening to next week. Tom. All righty. Let's get out the Albinator. I feel like it's been on a couple-week hiatus. We're going to break it out, see what we got next. So... Drum roll, please. We will be listening to... I'm totally going to not pronounce this correctly. I think Drive Like Jehu? Yank Crime is the album. Drive Like Jehu? Yehu is the band. Oh, did I mention I'm not available next week? (laughs) I'm already sick. There are many people that I'm sure are just shaking their lick some doorknobs and get COVID. Yeah. Wait, so drive like Jehu. J E H W. Yehu? Jehu? I don't know. Are they the ones who did moves okay. like Jagger? No. <laughs> oh, God. No. Wow. I'm not putting that on the playlist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you put that Mick Jagger and Will I Am song on the playlist? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it, oh, it also has J Lo on it. This is an actual song. You guys should listen to this. We listen Tom to and it. Tom and I. Night. Yeah, Tom and I were recently on a car ride where the playlist challenge was to play the worst song in existence. Oh there God. were some pretty choice uh, options there. Oh, there's it's a good like spin-off a, podcast. That that's an idea for a next yeah. 2015 uh, Will I Am J Lo and Mick Jagger and it's something about like something the beat being hard or something like that. And Mick oh. Jagger kind of raps like, "Yeah, beat is hard. Oh, oh no. beat hard." Yeah. It reminds me of uh, it's the movie Spaceballs where they like, they allude to Spaceballs too, and the subtitle is "We're yeah. back for more money." <laughs> like, is that, was that the name of the yeah, album? For more money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Merchandising. All right. Jehu, here we come. Good times. Well, I look forward to whatever the heck that is being in my ear holes all week. And I hope you, dear listener, also look forward to that. We have loved doing this. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. We'll compile that Spotify playlist for you in the notes. And if you have any thoughts, comments, concerns, dietary suggestions for a a Bowie (laughs) binge of your own, Please send them on over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. That's the number 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We'd love to read them, smoke them, store them in jars in our refrigerator, whatever (laughs) we want to do at that, however we're feeling at that particular moment. Okay, and so that is all for today. And in closing, for 1001album complaints, I've been Rob. I have been Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Alan. 
Boosh.